first night of this course, we talked a little bit about the vastness of the Buddha's vision, the vastness of his teachings, in terms of the different realms of existence, the higher realms and the lower realms, in terms of different world systems, you know, and infinite expanses of time. Although we may have a growing confidence in the teachings of the Buddha through our own experience, through our own practice, still for most of us, this vision, this vision of the cosmology, probably for most of us, is outside the range of our direct experience. (laughs) Maybe not for all. But there's another way of understanding the vastness and the depth of this great Dharma journey. It's not only about the vastness of the cosmology. Another way of understanding it is coming to a deeper and more profound realization of the nature of the mind itself. the nature of awareness, of how suffering is created in our own lives and in the world around us, and the possibility of freeing ourselves from those patterns of suffering. And the great task for us I think, is to consider this question not theoretically, not abstractly, not as a philosophical question, but what is the nature of suffering, what is the nature of freedom in our moment-to-moment experience? That's the task that's in front of us. What is the meaning of enlightenment? Without the Buddha's teachings, we hear of this word enlightenment or freedom. What does that really mean for us in our understanding? Now, in the different traditions, it's described from quite a few different perspectives. Some traditions speak directly to our experience now as the mind uh, is filled from time to time with the different defilements. So in Pali, the word is kalesa. Literally, that means torments of the mind. Or we should call them the afflictive emotions. Those mind states that are contraction, those mind states that cause suffering to us, that torment the mind. So some, some traditions of practice speak of enlightenment in terms of looking to understand these kalesas, these defilements, and how we can let go of them, how we can decondition them, how we can uproot them from the mind stream. Enlightenment is seen in terms of the mind free of greed and hatred and fear and all the forms of delusion. This is really the power of the first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching, the truth of suffering, because it's a very direct honest, true look at what's happening in our lives. 
Other traditions within Buddhism speak of enlightenment from the perspective of the enlightened mind itself. What is the enlightened mind like? And can we learn to recognize it in ourselves and abide in it in our experience? Now, all of these traditions and all of these perspectives and all the states of realization themselves converge in one understanding. They converge in one simple and profound expression of the teaching. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. When you look underneath all the skillful means of all the traditions and all the descriptions of the enlightened states, they all converge in this very simple understanding. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. The Buddha said that anyone who has heard this teaching, anyone who has heard this phrase, has heard all of the teachings. And anyone who puts this phrase into practice has practiced all the teachings. It's quite an amazing Dharma instruction. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So the question then arises for us, how can we practice this? How can we put it into practice? Now, how to live from this place of freedom, from this place of enlightened mind? The first step, I think, is to become very mindful and very attentive to all the places that we do cling. Because if we don't recognize these habituated patterns in our own mind, these patterns of clinging that we get caught in again and again, then we just continue to live really in a dream world of illusion, a dream world of ignorance. So we practice paying attention, and that's what we've been doing here for the last weeks. We pay attention to the breath, to sounds, to sensations, to thoughts, to emotions, to everything that's arising moment after moment. We also begin to notice not only what's arising, but also our reactions to what's arising. You know, and you've gotten a very good taste, I think, you know, of all the ways the mind likes and dislikes, and has attachment and pushes away and has aversion. We begin to see for ourselves very directly, really experience directly, the suffering that comes from holding on. There's a very wide range of suffering <coughs> that's born of grasping. From one extreme, you know, we could say the suffering of mental illness where there's an intense identification with certain patterns of thought or emotion or imagery. And the identification is so intense that there's no space at all 
in the mind. There's no freedom at all. We can see suffering in our more ordinary deluded states. You know, I'm sure you've noticed times when the mind is simply caught in these obsessive thought loops. You know, they just go around and around repeating the same particular story over and over again. We begin to see the strong attachments we have to opinions and views of things, whether it's opinions and views about ourselves, about other people, about the world, about the Dharma. Attachment to view, clinging to view, is a tremendous source of suffering in our lives when we really look carefully. I had one example of this attachment to view, and it really was, it was kind of like a little epiphany for me. I was in the Peace Corps when I finished college, and I was in Bangkok, in Thailand for two years, which is where I first got introduced to meditation and Buddhism. When I first started practicing, I was so excited about the meditation. I mean, it's such a new thing for me, and most of the people I knew. I used to invite my friends to come over and watch me meditate. (laughs) (laughs) Now I just got a bigger place to do that. Anyway, so I was in Thailand, I started my meditative career, and then I spent quite a long time in India practicing. And I was very immersed in the tradition of Burmese Buddhism. You know, I practiced and studied and did a lot of reading, and it was, it was an immersion over many years. Came back to this country, it was in 1974, I was teaching at uh, Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And there was the poster, and this was in 74 or 75, a poster of a talk that was going to be given by one of the great Tibetan masters, name was Dujom Rinpoche, was one of the, the heads of one of the great lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. And on this poster it said, Dujom Rinpoche, incarnation of Sariputta. Now Sariputta was the chief disciple of the Buddha second only to the Buddha in his wisdom and his enlightenment. And if anybody was enlightened, this guy was. And from the Burmese or Theravada point of view, when you're enlightened, you don't come back. (laughs) So I had this very strong view, you know, because I had really been in this tradition very deeply. It was just it was just impossible. When, when you're enlightened, there's no more rebirth. And yet here was this sign saying, Dujum Rinpoche, incarnation of Sariputta. And this was, a, this was not just some sort of new age guru. <laughs> you know, this was one of the great masters of this century. 
And so I was trying to hold these two conflicting views, opinions. And it caused me quite a lot of, of like going on tilt. Until there was that this moment, this epiphany, and I came to this very profound realization that I really didn't have a clue. <laughs> you know, I had no idea whether he was the incarnation of Saraputta or not. I knew what this tradition said, and I knew what this tradition said, and it was such a tremendous relief <laughs> to realize that I didn't know and that I didn't have to have an opinion about it. And it was a very, a very good lesson in the suffering that comes when we position ourselves in a view, especially about things that we don't really know. <laughs> Resting in this Thompson in the Koreans and there's a very nice person says, don't know mind. And just resting, don't know mind. So that's a useful, it's a very useful place to cultivate because it really opens us, it opens us to what we don't know. So we can see the suffering in these obsessive thought loops. We can see the suffering in our attachment to opinions or to viewpoints. We can see the suffering uh, in emotions that repeatedly overwhelm us. You know, we're, we just have not yet learned how to let go of anger, of resentment, of worry, of hatred, of fear. And so these states torment us. But we do something even more than simply suffer in them. And this is very strange when we look at it. We often justify these states to ourselves. Well, I should feel angry. You know, I should feel this way. Who's suffering? We're the ones that are suffering. And so part of the experience, the practice of freedom, is learning how to let go of this kind of grasping, of taking these states to be I or mine. We see suffering in our addiction to certain actions, you know, or speech in our lives, which we do repeatedly, even when we know they're harmful. You know, it's quite amazing the power of habit, the power of grasping, the power of these addictions, even if they're relatively minor ones. We can do things again and again and again, knowing that they're harmful, that they don't lead to happiness, and yet keep on doing them. There's a phenomenon that happens on retreat. It's another kind of grasping mind. We call it the yogi mind phenomena. You know, where people get so sensitized, you know, from the practice, that so many little things can loom so large. You know, it's just Well, I'll just give you one little example. <laughs> we have a collection of Yogi Mind stories and know them well from my own practice. I'll just tell you one from my own practice. <laughs> I was sitting in this building up in what's now uh, the, the upstairs sitting room, you know, the 101. And I was doing a self-retreat there. And I was sitting for about a month or two. 
And I started hearing voices in the radiator pipe. <laughs> and I was hearing whole conversations. And my mind started first listening. <laughs> and somehow I got this idea that there were people in the kitchen. And somehow from the kitchen, these voices were traveling up through the pipe. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a way. And I don't even know if the pipes go, you know, in that route. And I was hearing wild things about friends, and one killed the other, and one was dying of this or that, you know, my mind was. <laughs> it, it was so intense, and I believed this so deeply. I mean, I, I, was, I was deep in silence. I had to leave the room, go down to the kitchen, find out what's going on here. Why aren't you telling me this stuff? And I thought people were trying to protect my retreat. The mind can just start obsessing about things, which often, of course, are not even true. We had one yogi, it was on a course in the West Coast, who was disturbed by the planes flying overhead. He wrote a note to the manager. If they could write to United Airlines to reroute the flight, Clinging to anything as I or mine is suffering, you know, from extreme to, to yogi mind. Whatever particular experience, whatever particular arising appearance, you know, in our experience we grasp that, it becomes a prison of self, it becomes a prison of I. Every time we grasp at something, the I, or the ego in this sense, has taken rebirth. Now the ego, or self, in the Buddhist sense, is not something that's there that we have to get rid of. It's not that somehow we have to destroy the ego. It's the understanding that this ego self is being created, is being born, in every moment or any moment that we grasp at something, we cling to something, we identify with something. The ego is that condition of the mind that takes place when there's grasping. That is what the ego is. That is what the sense of self is. And notice how often this ego self takes rebirth during the course of the day. We're taking rebirth countless, countless times. Now, there's a Tibetan, uh, in, in Tibetan painting, it's often in the form of a tanka, you know, these kind of scroll paintings. One of the very famous ones is the Wheel of Life. And it's a depiction of just the different realms of existence. We can see this rebirth in the different realms of existence happening within one day. When we get lost in some pleasant fantasy, it's like taking rebirth in a pleasant, a heavenly sense sphere. We're just kind of enjoying the pleasure of the senses. If we get 
caught by some very strong, unfulfilled longing or wanting. That's really taking rebirth in the hungry ghost realm, and where beings are never satisfied. And we know, we know that feeling when we're lost or really grasping at that feeling of unfulfilled wanting, longing. Or if we're lost in hatred, for that period of time it's as if we've taken rebirth in a hell realm. Or if we're immersed in the feeling of metta, of compassion, that's taking rebirth in the Brahma realms, the highest realms. It's really interesting to see and to notice carefully how the self or I takes birth in these different mind-created worlds countless times in the day. All these worlds are mind-created. Between one step and the next, how many different worlds can we create and live in? And yet when we're not aware, we take them to be real, we take them to be substantial. This is the meaning of samsara, this, this notion of perpetual wandering through these realms of mind creation. The Buddha and other many great teachers have also spoken of rebirth in these different realms actually from life to life as well. Now, in the different realms being conditioned by the realms we create right here. When we begin to (coughs) see clearly this endless cycle of rebirth that's happening each day, each hour, and how unfulfilling it is, we just go around, from, from the happy ones to the unhappy ones, around and around. There's no fulfillment in it. As we see this, as we wake up, to the fact that this is what's happening, it becomes the seed of a very basic questioning. You know, it, it starts providing the energy for an invest- investigation of what's going on here, what, what's happening in my life, what is the nature of my mind. And it finally leads to a very great faith, a very great confidence in our ability to understand the Dharma, to understand ourselves. Now, where is the end of it all? How long do we need to spend creating and living in this perpetual wandering of our own mind creations? Can we stop creating the contraction, the limitation, the prison of self and separation? Buddha spoke of three doorways of liberation, three gateways to actually liberate ourselves from this samsara of perpetual wandering. And these are three three understandings or three insights 
that deconditions the very uh, powerful force and habit of grasping in the mind. These three insights, these three gateways that lead us to liberation, to enlightenment. The first of them we've talked a bit about before is the insight into impermanence. Things are changing on all levels, whether we look at the most macro level, you know, clusters of galaxies down to the tiniest subatomic particles and everything in between, wherever we look, if we look, we see that things are in constant change, constant flux. When we see this clearly, again and again, when we practice seeing it, what happens is that the heart relaxes and the mind begins to decondition the force of grasping or clinging precisely because everything is changing. Now we see the futility of trying to hold on. It's like, you ever just, you know, sat or, or watched uh, a waterfall and the water pouring over it? endless, endless stream of water pouring over. The futility of trying to stop it or grasp it. Our experience is just like that. It's like the cascade of changing phenomena. Now to deepen our experience of this, we have to make a very significant level shift in our practice. And this is an important uh, turning point for us when we do make this shift. And it's going from the level from the level of perception of concepts of things to the level of perception of direct experience. I'll just give you a few examples. Now, when we hear a sound, almost immediately the mind jumps into the concept bird, truck, radiator, person, car, whatever it is. And if we're not aware that the mind has jumped in with this concept, <coughs> we tend to reify or solidify the experience and actually think that we're hearing a bird. We're not hearing a bird. We hear a sound and we think bird. Bird is a thought. Bird is not a sound. Now why is this difference important? Hear a bird today, hear a bird tomorrow, hear a bird the next day. The concept bird remains the same. It's as if there's some really solid existing thing called bird. Whereas when we're on the level of direct perception, we see that the sound is a current of momentarily changing vibration and modulations. There's nothing permanent there even for two microseconds. And so it begins to see the change in nature. And when the level of concept, we don't. You're sitting. And a common perception, my back hurts. 
I'm sure at least some of you have had that thought. You know? <laughs> My back hurts. But we don't really feel back. Back is not a sensation. We feel tightness, burning, pressure, twisting, stabbing. A whole long list of painful sensations. But if we're on the level of back, of concept, well, my back hurt yesterday, my back hurt today, my back's going to probably hurt tomorrow, we start living in this world, this illusion, that there's some more or less unchanging thing which we call back. But when we drop to the level of direct experience, we see that what we're calling back is actually a current, a flow of momentary experience, momentary sensations. Begin to experience the body as a changing energy field, rather than as being the solid, more or less permanent thing. The shift from the level of concept to the level of direct experience is a crucial one in our practice, because that's what opens up this gateway of liberation to seeing impermanence. In the meditation practice itself, you can heighten your awareness of impermanence by not only noticing what it is that's arising, but pay attention or bring into the moment the very focused awareness of what happens to each arising object. Now, in working with Upandita Sayadaw, that's what we would, ha- we would need to report in that way. We'd have to take part of our meditation and report on the sequence of objects and what happened to each one. You know, there was a sound, I noted hearing, it got stronger, it got weaker, it disappeared. There was a sensation, you know, I noted as pressure, as I noted it, it dissolved quickly or it grew strong or whatever. Well, that was a very demanding exercise because in order to know what happened to each object, we really had to look, we had to be paying attention, otherwise we wouldn't know. So I suggest that just as an exercise for you, and even for a few minutes at a time, it will heighten your awareness of the momentariness of things. But we can also reflect or become aware of impermanence sort of on a more macro level, not only on this kind of meditative, microscopic level. I can't remember whether I mentioned this story to you or not, but on, this, on my last retreat here, uh, I was walking down to the lake, just up here, and I just started tuning into the impermanence. And I started, as I got closer to the lake, I started reflecting you know, what I experienced earlier on in the walk, five minutes ago, ten minutes ago, seemed completely gone. And then my mind, well, not only five minutes ago, one minute ago, thirty seconds ago, one second ago, that when we're really paying attention to experience, it's like that water over the waterfall, nothing is lasting. If 
interesting that when we look back on our experience, it's very easy for us to see and understand the empty, insubstantial, impermanent nature of it all. We've all had this experience. This is not some subtle, esoteric, mystical understanding. When we look back, it's so clear that our experience has all disappeared. Now think of the worst moment, the worst moment of this retreat, when you just felt the most horrible, or think of the best moment, if there was one. (laughs) Where are they? Now where are they now? Now what's amazing is when we look back, we understand this so clearly, and yet when we look ahead, we are continually dazzled by the array of possibilities. Even though we know that each one of those possibilities is going to become just like everything else that's passed. But why do we get so hooked? Seeing impermanence more and more clearly deconditions grasping. It reorients us towards letting go. Now the quality of mind associated with seeing impermanence is space. These two are associated. Everything is changing moment to moment. We're not creating this. When we look, when we pay attention, we see this is how things are happening. So the question is, can we relax into this flow of change? Can we surrender into it instead of fighting with it, instead of grasping at it? It needs a sense of faith or a sense of trust to surrender to the flow of change and all the different ways this flow of change manifests. Now, at times, change is exhilarating. When we see everything, everything changing. Every moment, something new is arising. And when we're when we're focused on the newly arising experience, and this is part of what fascinates us, we get tremendously energized and exhilarated. And this happens in the practice. You know, at certain times, as we tune into the rapidity of change, and it's, it's very exciting. But then there's another perspective. We were not seeing things being born in every moment, but actually we're seeing things die every moment. We're seeing things ending, dissolving, that there's no place to take us in, no place for security. We begin to see that another word for change is lost. And then in every moment there's loss and loss and loss and loss and loss. So when we're in this perspective on change, and we're seeing it from this side, it's not a very happy state. You know, there's often a lot of fear or sorrow or we feel upset by it. Because we're seeing so clearly that there's nothing to hold on to. Even if we wanted to hold on, there's no ability to. Then we come to another perspective where it's neither kind of the exhilaration of seeing things arise being born all the time, nor the fear or sorrow of seeing seeing things dying in every moment, 
we come to a place of very profound equanimity. Now where the mind is open and spacious and it's just holding this birth and death, this rise and fall of phenomena in great evenness. There's a story which illustrates this sequence, which perhaps many of you remember. It's the story of a person uh, jumping out of a plane. And the first part of his fall is free fall. You know, and it's tremendously exciting. And, um, and I've never done it, but it must be a thrill. I'm <laughs> falling in that exhilaration and excitement, and all of a sudden this person realizes they have no parachute. <laughs> you know, and so then there's tremendous fear and panic and terror. No, no parachute, what's going to happen? And it continues to fall full of fear, full of terror, until they realize there's no ground. <laughs> this is really the sequence of our practice. <laughs> the exhilaration of freefall as we really tune into the truth of impermanence on a very microscopic level, the fear of seeing the continual dissolution, and the great equanimity of realizing the essential groundlessness you know, of our being. faith or trust which allows us just to surrender to this whole process of understanding impermanence. And our growing of experience of impermanence deepens our sense of faith and trust. Ajahn Shah, who somebody mentioned the other night, the Thai meditation master, He has some good lines here. He said, Do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. I like it because it's a reminder of the great simplicity of the Dharma. Now, it's not easy to do, but it's not complicated. Okay, the first gateway to liberation is this growing insight into impermanence. The second gateway to liberation is the insight into suffering. Steve spoke a lot about that the other night. We experience suffering in, in many ways, which we're familiar with. Just actual feelings of pain, whether physical or mental, the suffering of the unreliability of things, the suffering of having to keep things together. Sort of equate it with the second law of thermodynamics. Spell which I know very little. (laughs) 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 Except as I understand it, it's like all all systems tend to disorder. And so to keep things ordered, it takes energy. And that's that's another kind of dukkha, another kind of suffering. When we can allow ourselves to open to the suffering that's there, we can deeply allow it, the letting go, the non-grasping, happens by itself. And it's somewhat analogous to holding a hot burning coal. 
When we become aware of the pain of holding that coal, no, I think I'll hold on to it for a little bit more. Yeah. And, and we don't even need a technique. <laughs> when we are deeply, fully there for it, we let go. And this is what happens as we're willing to open in deeper and more profound ways to the truth of suffering, this first noble truth. We need to also pay careful attention to the environment around the suffering. Because often in the environment of suffering, there's feelings of resistance or denial or avoidance or contraction or fear or something around it. And we very often identify with those responses and so create the sense of self in that sense of self in our identification with resistance or avoidance. So it's a very nuanced uh, exploration. The quality of mind associated with this insight into suffering is concentration. Just as faith is associated with impermanence because the mind needs to be concentrated in order to stay steady with the suffering that's there so that we can hold it, so that we can open to it. We need that power of steadiness, of one-pointedness. And on the other side, the pain and suffering becomes a great vehicle for concentration. Because when there's the strong pain in the knee or the back or wherever, our mind's not wandering much. (laughs) Pain is a very compelling object. And if we know how to work with it, the mind can get a extremely concentrated with pain. And there are countless stories in the text of people getting enlightened watching pain. And so it's important to, to learn how to hold it, how to be with it, in a way that becomes a gateway to liberation. There's a gateway of impermanence, the gateway of suffering. The third gateway to liberation is the insight into selflessness into emptiness, anatta. Now in many ways this is the hardest part of the Buddhist teaching to understand. Now the others make sense. And they our common sense can understand them. But what does selflessness mean? So many, I think it's the most frequently asked question in 22 years teaching, the one that's asked most frequently, if there's no self then, who gets angry? You know, who falls in love? Who came to the retreat? Who's making, who's making effort? Who has memory? Who gets sleepy? If there's no self, well, who is it that's going through all this? And our sense of self is reinforced very often we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we have this sense, yep, there I am again. <laughs> Just like yesterday. <laughs> How can we understand what the Buddha was talking about? Because this is the jewel of the teachings. This is the jewel, really, 
the jewel of liberation, coming to this realization of selflessness, emptiness of self. So there are a few different ways that we can realize this in our own experience for ourselves. One meaning of anatta is that everything arises out of conditions. That all experience, all appearances, do not have any inherent self-existence, existing independent of conditions, but that everything is arising out of conditions. I'll give you one example. Now, sometimes after a rain, <coughs> we might go outside and look up at the sky and see a rainbow. And almost, you know, for all of us, we see the rainbow and we have this kind of feeling of delight, the beautiful phenomena. I say, oh, you know, come look at the rainbow. How often <coughs> do we stop to ask or consider, well, what actually is the rainbow? What is a rainbow? Is there such a thing as a rainbow? And when we look more carefully, <coughs> we see that rainbow is an appearance arising out of certain conditions. There's air and there's light and there's moisture in a certain combination. When these conditions come together, there's an appearance which we call rainbow. But there's no thing in itself which is the rainbow. It has no self-existence. It's just, in, in some traditions, it's called like a magical display. And it's appearance out of conditions. Well, Joseph, on the other hand, or each one of us, is like that rainbow. There's an appearance of self due to the coming together of certain conditions. There's material elements, the physical elements, and thoughts and emotions and this and that, and all these constituents come together and there's a certain appearance of Joseph. But the problem is we've taken this appearance to be something real, to be something self-existing, and then we identify with this concept, with this idea, and we live trapped in this prison of the concept of self, of I, because we haven't looked underneath, we haven't seen really what does this refer to. So I kind of like this. We can think that each one of us is like a rainbow. You know, it's a nice way to understand this process. It's just an appearance due to conditions. You can understand selflessness or emptiness from another perspective, from the perspective of realizing that all the arising appearances don't refer back to anyone. It's not that there's anyone behind experience to whom they are happening, but rather what we're calling self, what we're calling I, is this parade of passing experience. There's no central reference point to whom they're pointing or to whom they're referring. 
the thought is the thinker. It's not that there's a one having the thought. The thought is thinking itself. There's a, a little teaching from the Song of Mahamudra. It says, The clouds that wander through the sky have no root, no home, nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. <laughs> I like that image because the image of a cloud having a root is so absurd. <laughs> and yet, even though thoughts have that same nature, the thoughts are floating through the mind, just like the clouds float through the sky, mostly we're not in the space of seeing that. We're rooting each thought through our identification with this is me, I'm thinking. So again we create the sense of self. It's the thought which is the thinker. Anger angers. Love loves. Judging judges. Each particular mental state, mental phenomenon, is doing its own thing. There's no one behind it. What happens, though, and we've seen this over and over again, is we're in this very deeply established habit of identifying with each of these things as they come along. Sometimes I get the image of thoughts and feelings and sensations and emotions and sounds and you know, the whole range of experience are like experiences coming along and each with a little hook and the mind is like a fish <laughs> biting on the hook. Can we learn not to bite? Can we learn to simply allow all phenomena, empty phenomena rolling on? It's pleasant, it's unpleasant. As we bite, as we identify with these various aspects of experience, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, a sensation, whatever it is, what happens is, in that moment, we are building a superstructure of self. We're building the skyscraper of self on top of a momentary, insubstantial experience that's arising. We build this whole edifice of self on top of a thought, on top of a sound, on top of a feeling. There are a couple of poems by Rumi, who really are wonderful. No one knows who I am. No one can find me. No one can hurt me. No one can destroy me. Oh, beloved, you have lifted me clear of me. Fate's arrows rain down on an old rag doll. That's great. You have lifted me clear of me. And you've taken the eye out of it. Fate's arrows rain down on an old rag doll. He wrote, what I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. (laughs) We have lived too long where we can be reached. 
There's another way of understanding selflessness, is non-identification, seeing that things don't refer back to anyone. Another way of opening to this insight into emptiness is seeing directly that experience is not amenable to our will. Everything is following the nature of its own laws. Let me not get old. Let me not get sick. Let me only have pleasant experience. Let me have no thought. Does it make any sense at all? No. Because this, one of the meanings of the word Dharma is law, is nature. Things are following their own nature. There's no one running the show. Now the great gift of the Buddha's enlightenment, the great gift really of his teaching to all of us, is that he understood so clearly what conditions lead to happiness, what conditions lead to suffering. So then there's simply the cultivation, the wise cultivation of the law of the nature. Because this is of the nature that brings happiness, peace, liberation. This is of the nature that brings contraction and separation. One of the simplest and most pragmatic expressions of the practice of selflessness, if you need a one-liner to leave the retreat with, this is from Bankai, who was a 17th century uh, Japanese Zen master and very uh, iconoclastic. His one kind of pith instruction was, don't side with yourself. And when I was reading this book, there's a wonderful book of his teachings called The Unborn, and it's really a, a very illuminating and liberating book. But this one I came across this one line, don't side with yourself. That's it. You know, because how often, how many times in our lives Oh, actually, here's a P.S. to Bankai. <laughs> Don't create a self to side with. <laughs> okay, that's our practice. Because this short kind of instruction or perspective, don't side with yourself, it frees us you know, from the contraction of self-reference which really is the root or the cause of so much suffering in our lives, so much a sense of separation. It really allows us to stay and to relax into the clear, empty nature of awareness itself. What is awareness? What is this awareness that we can rest in, that we can abide in? Can we learn to recognize 
its natural lucidity, its natural clarity. Awareness is the universal power of knowing. Knowing sights, knowing sounds, knowing sensations, knowing feelings, knowing hindrances, knowing all the factors of enlightenment. It's that which knows. Another word for awareness, or another phrase, we could call awareness the mind of no clinging. Just experience right now for a moment the mind of no clinging. It's that space of empty lucidity, of empty clarity, the empty luminosity, that nature is knowing. They call it unconstructed awareness or unfabricated mindfulness. We can recognize through, through interest and through attentiveness, we can learn to recognize this nature of awareness within ourselves. It is our nature. And it's a tremendous mystery. You know, moment after moment, things are being known effortlessly, spontaneously. When a sound appears, do we do anything in order to know that sound? No, the sound appears and is known. A movement, the sensations of a movement appear and are known. You know, a thought, an emotion, a sight. Well, what is it? Known by what? There's nothing to see, there's nothing to hold on to, there's nothing to touch. Awareness is invisible, it's clear, it's unformed, it's uncreated. Now great care is needed here that we don't start identifying with the awareness itself. Because if we identify with awareness, that identification again clouds or obstructs is open innate wakefulness. The nature of the mind is awareness. This fundamental purity or clarity of mind has been pointed to in all of the traditions. The mind, O bhikkhus, is radiant and pure. It is obscured by the visiting defilements. We get distracted from it. The mind, oh, bhikkhus, bhikkhus is monks and nuns and all people practicing. The mind is radiant and pure. But it gets obscured by the visiting defilements. Can we rest in the natural radiance, in the natural purity of it? This is in the song of Mahamudra. The essence of mind is like vast space. Therefore, there is nothing which it does not encompass. The nature of the mind is like vast space. Therefore, there is nothing which it does not encompass. 
many Tibetan texts, there's a word, emaho, scattered throughout the text. And what emaho means is how amazing. So it's like you read these texts, and every once in a while, how amazing. (laughs) And then you read a little more, how amazing. This is a teaching from a Tibetan yogi monk, his name was Shabkar, who lived in the 18th century. And he wrote some beautiful, beautiful descriptions of the nature of mind. So it starts with Imaho, how amazing. Now come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially empty. There is nothing there to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape. It has no color. And in the end, nowhere to go. There's no trace of its having been by. In the beginning, mind itself is not created by causes and finally not destroyed by external conditions. It neither grows nor gets stuck. It's not empty or full. Infusing peace and anguish alike, it shows no preference. Ceaselessly, it reveals itself as everything. So you can't say, here it is. Not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies, neither illuminates nor obscures. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. all here. The quality of the mind that's associated with this understanding of emptiness, of selflessness, is wisdom. That quality of seeing things just as they are. As we see the conditioned and insubstantial 
an empty nature of all appearances. We stop grasping at things as I or mine. There's a resting in this natural emptiness, this natural clarity of the nature of our minds. end with a teaching from someone I mentioned the other night Gildok Henshi Rinpoche again pointing to this essential nature to cut through the mind's clinging it is important to understand that all appearances are empty like the appearance of water in a mirage. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind, nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Sever the ties of hope and fear, attraction and repulsion, and remain in equanimity in the understanding that all phenomena are nothing more than appearances of your own mind. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all of the teachings. Whoever puts this into practice has practiced all of the teachings. And that's really what we're doing here together. So let's take a few minutes. Look directly into the nature of your own mind. Invisible, empty, without color, without form. Look directly into the nature of your own mind. Unformed, unborn, Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal. Look within your own mind. Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.